I don't know if this is really worthy of a spiritual occasion. It's a humorous story by P.G. Woodhouse. And uh, I have always loved him since the age of 12 when I was a student in, Indi in England. And uh, I discovered him. It was, he's the funniest writer who ever lived. And although I feel slightly guilty welcoming you with a funny story instead of deep teaching, there is some teaching in him, which is to have a gay and cheerful outlook on life. The Rise of Minna Nordstrom by the Reverend P.G. Woodhouse. <coughs> they had been showing the latest Minna Nordstrom picture at the Bijou Dream in High Street, and Miss Postlethwaite, our sensitive barmaid, who had attended the premiere, was still deeply affected. She snuffled audibly as she polished the glasses. This is all in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest. It's really good, is it, we asked, for the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest. We lean heavily on Miss Postlethwaite's opinion where the silver screen is concerned. Her verdict can mar or make. It's wonderful, she assured us. It lays bare for all to view the soul of a woman who dared everything for love. A poignant and uplifting drama of life as it is lived today, purifying the emotions with pity and terror. A rum and milk said that if it was as good as all that, he didn't know, but that he might not risk ninepence on it. The sherry and bitters wondered what they paid a woman like Minna Nordstrom. A port from the wood, raising the conversation from the rather sordid plane to which it threatened to sink, speculated on how motion picture stars became stars. What I mean, said the port from the wood, does the studio deliberately set out to create a star, or does it say suddenly to itself, hello, here's a star, what ho? <laughs> One of these, those cynical dry martinis who always know everything said that it's all a question of influence. If you looked into it, you would find this Nordstrom girl was married to one of the bosses. Mr. Mulliner, who had been sipping his hot scotch and lemon in a rather straight way, glanced up. Did I hear you mention the name Miss Minna Nordstrom? We were arguing about how she became a star. I was saying that she must have had pull of some kind. In a sense, said Mr. Mulliner, you are right. She did have pull. But it was one due solely to her own initiative and resource. I have relatives and connections in Hollywood, as you know, and I learned much of the inner history of the studio world through these channels. I happen to know that Minna Nordstrom <clears throat> raised herself to her present eminence by sheer enterprise and determination. If Miss Postlethwaite will mix me another hot scotch and lemon, this time emphasizing the scotch a little more vigorously, <clears throat> I shall be delighted to tell you the whole story. When people talk with bated breath in Hollywood, and it is a place where there is always a certain amount of bated breath going on, <laughs> you will generally find, said Mr. Mulliner, that the subject of their conversation is Jacob Z. Schnellenheimer, the popular president of the Perfecto Zisbaum Corporation, for few names are more widely revered than that of this Napoleonic man. Ask for an instance of his financial acumen, and his admirers will point to the great merger for which he was responsible, that merger by means of which he combined his own company, the colossal exquisite, 
with those two other vast concerns, the perfecto fishbein and the zizbaum celluloid. <laughs> Demand proof of his artistic genius, his flair for recognizing talent in the raw, and it is given immediately. He was the man who discovered Mena Nordstrom. Today, when interviewers bring up the name of the world-famous star in Mr. Schnellenhammer's presence, he smiles quietly. I had long had my eye on the little lady, he says, but for one reason and another, I did not consider the time ripe for her debut. Then I brought about what you are good enough to call the epoch-making merger, and I was enabled to make this decisive step. My colleagues questioned the wisdom of elevating a totally unknown girl to stardom, but I was firm. I saw that it was the only thing to be done. You had vision? I had vision. <laughs> All that Mr. Schnellenhammer had, however, on the evening when this story began was a headache and perhaps double vision. <laughs> As he returned from the day's work at the studio and sank wearily into an armchair in the sitting room of his luxurious home in Beverly Hills, he was feeling that the life of the president of a motion picture corporation was one that he would hesitate to force on any dog of which he was fond. A morbid meditation, of course, but not wholly unjustified. The great drawback to being the man in control of a large studio is that everybody you meet starts acting at you. <laughs> Hollywood is entirely populated by those who want to get into the pictures, and they naturally feel that the best way of accomplishing their object is to catch the boss's eye and do their stuff. <laughs> Since leaving home this morning, Mr. Schnellenhammer had been acted at practically incessantly. First, it was the studio watchman who, having opened the gate to admit his car, proceeded to play a little scene designed to show what he would do in a heavy role. <laughs> then came his secretary, two book agents, the waitress who brought him his lunch, a life insurance man, a representative of Film Weekly, and a barber. And on leaving at the end of the day, he got the watchman again, this time in whimsical comedy. <laughs> Little wonder, then, that by the time he reached home, the magnate was conscious of a throbbing sensation about the temples and an urgent desire for a restorative. As a preliminary to obtaining the latter, he rang the bell and Vera Preble, his parlor maid, entered. For a moment he was surprised not to see his butler. Then he recalled that he had dismissed him just after breakfast for reciting Gungadin <laughs> in, in a meaning way while he brought the eggs and bacon. <clears throat> you rang, sir? I want a drink. Very good, sir. The girl withdrew to return a few moments later with a decanter and a siphon. The sight caused Mr. Schlinelham's gloom to lighten a little. He was proud of his cellar and he knew that the decanter contained liquid balm. In a sudden gush of tenderness, he eyed its bearer appreciatively, thinking what a nice girl she looked. Until now, he had never studied Vera Preble's appearance to any great extent or thought about her very much in any way. When she entered his employment a few days before, 
He had noticed, of course, that she had a sort of ethereal beauty, but then every girl you see in Hollywood has either ethereal beauty or roguish gumminery or a dark, slumberous face that hints at hidden passion. <laughs> Put it down there on the small table, said Mr. Schnellenheimer, passing his tongue over his lips. The girl did so. Then, straightening herself, she suddenly threw her head back and clutched the sides of it in an ecstasy of hopeless anguish. Oh, 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 she cried. <laughs> eh? said Mr. Schnellenheimer. Ah, oh, ah, oh, ah! Oh. I don't get you at all, said Mr. Schnellenheimer. <laughs> she gazed at him with wide, despairing eyes. If you knew how sick and tired I am of it all, tired, 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 the litter, the glights, the glitter, the gaiety, it's so hollow, so fruitless, I want to get away from it all. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Schnellenheimer <coughs> retreated behind the Chesterfield. <laughs> that laugh had had an unbalanced ring. He had not liked it. He was about to continue his backward progress in the direction of the door when the girl, who had closed her eyes and was rocking to and fro as if suffering from some internal pain, became calmer. Just a little thing I knocked together with a view to showing myself in a dramatic role, she said. Watch, I'm going to register. Smi she smiled. Joy. Grief. She wiggled her ears. Horror. She raised her eyebrows, hate. <laughs> then, taking a parcel from the tray, <clears throat> here she said, if you would care to glance at them, or a few stills of myself, this shows my face in repose, I call it reverie. This is me in a bathing suit, riding, walking, happy among my books, being kind to the dog. Here is one of which my friends have been kind enough to speak in terms of praise as Cleopatra, the warrior queen of Egypt. <clears throat> At the Pasadena gas fitter's ball, it brings out what is generally considered my most effective feature, the nose seen sideways. <laughs> During the course of these remarks, Mr. Schnellenhammer had been standing, breathing heavily. For a while, the discovery that this parlor-maid, of whom he had just been thinking so benevolently, was simply another snake in the grass, had rendered him incapable of speech. Now his aphasia left him. Get out, he said. <laughs> Pardon, said the girl. Get out this minute, you're fired. There was a silence. Vera Preble closed her mouth, wiggled her ears, and raised her eyebrows. It was plain that she was grieved, horror-stricken, and in the grip of a growing hate. <laughs> what, she demanded passionately, and what's the matter with all you movie magnates? Have you no hearts? Have you no compassion? Have you no sympathy, no understanding? Do the ambitions of the struggling mean nothing to you? No, replied Janelle No, 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 and no. Fair Preble laughed bitterly. No is right, she said. For months I besieged the doors of the casting directors. They refused to cast me. Then I thought if I could find a way into your homes, I might succeed where I had failed before. I secured the post of parlor maid to Mr. Fishbein of the Perfecto Fishbein. Halfway through Rudyard Kipling's boots, 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 he <laughs> brutally bade me to be gone. I obtained a similar position with Mr. Zisbon of the Zisbon Celluloid. The opening lines of The Wreck of the Hesperus had hardly passed my lips when he was upstairs helping to pack my trunk. 
and now you crush my hopes. It is cruel, cruel. Oh. <laughs> she rocked to and fro in an agony of grief. Then an idea seemed to strike her. I wonder if you would care to see me in light comedy. <laughs> no? No. Very well. With a quick droop of the eyelids and a twitch of the muscles of the cheeks, she registered resignation. Just as you please, she said. <clears throat> then her nostrils quivered and she bared the left canine tooth to indicate menace. But one last word, wait. How do you mean, wait? Just wait, that's all. For an instant, Mr. Schnellenhammer was conscious of a twinge of uneasiness. Like all motion picture magnates, he had about 47 guilty secrets. <laughs> Many of them recorded on paper. <laughs> was it possible that... And then he breathed again. All his private documents were secure in a safe deposit box. It was absurd to imagine that this girl could have anything on him. Relieved, he lay down on the Chesterfield and gave himself up to daydreams. And soon, as he remembered that, that morning he had put through a deal which would enable him to trim the stuffing out of 273 exhibitors. His lips curved in a contented smile, and Vera Preble was forgotten. One of the advantages of life in Hollywood is that the servant problem is not a difficult one. Supply more than equals demand. Two minutes after you have thrown a butler out the back door, his successor is bowling up in his sports model car. <laughs> and the same applies to parlor maids. By the following afternoon, all was well once more with the Schnellenheimer domestic machine. A new butler was cleaning the silver. A new parlor maid was doing whatever parlor maids do, which is very little. <laughs> Peace reigned in the house. But on the second evening, as Mr. Schnellenheimer, the day's task over, entered his sitting room with nothing on his mind but bright thoughts of dinner, he was met by what had all the appearance of a human whirlwind. This was Mrs. Schnellenheimer. A graduate of the silence films, Mrs. Schnellenheimer had been known in her day as the queen of stormy emotion. <laughs> And she occasionally saw to it that her husband was reminded of this. <laughs> <clears throat> now see what, said Mrs. Schnellenheimer. Mr. Schnellenheimer was perturbed. Is something wrong, he asked nervously. <laughs> Why did you fire that girl, Vila Pebble? She went ha, 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 ha at me. <clears throat> well, do you know what she has done? She has laid information with the police that we're harboring alcoholic liquor on our premises, contrary to law. And this afternoon she came in a truck and took it all away. <laughs> this was when they had prohibition in America. <laughs> Mr. Schnellenheimer reeled. The shock was severe. The good man loves his cellar. <laughs> Not all, he cried almost pleadingly. All. The scotch? Every bottle. The gin, every drop. Mr. Schnellenhammer supported himself against the Chesterfield. Not the champagne, he whispered. Every case, and here we are, with 150 people coming tonight, including the Duke. Her allusion was to the Duke of Wigan, who, as so many British Dukes do, 
was at this time passing slowly through Hollywood. (laughs) (coughs) And you know how touchy dukes are, proceeded Mrs. Schnellenheimer. I'm told that Lulu Bell McAfee's invited the Duke of Kitten Kirkwood Brightshire for the weekend last time, and if he had been there two months, he suddenly left in a huff because there was no brown sherry. A motion picture magnate has to be a quick thinker. Where a lesser man would have wasted time referring to the recent Miss Preble as a serpent whom he had to all intents and purposes nurtured in his bosom, Mr. Schnellenheimer directed the whole force of his great bane on the vital problem of how to undo the evil she had wrought. Listen, he said, it's all right. I'll get the bootlegger on the phone and he'll have us stocked up again in no time. Bootlegger, I don't know if you know the expression, but it's somebody who illegally uh, provided liquor for people back in the days of the Prohibition. But he had overlooked the something in the air of Hollywood which urges every inhabitant irresistibly into the pictures. When he got his bootlegger's number, it was only to discover that that life-saving tradesman was away from home. They were shooting a scene in sundered hearts at the outstanding screen favorite's lot, and the bootlegger was hard at work there, playing the role of an Anglican bishop. (laughs) His secretary said he could not be disturbed as it got him all upset to be interrupted when he was working. (laughs) Mr. Schnellenheimer tried another bootlegger, then another. They were all out on location. (laughs) It was just as he had begun to despair that he bethought him of his old friend Isidore Fishbein and into his darkness there shot a gleam of hope. By the greatest good fortune, it so happened that he and the president of Perfecto Fishbein were at the moment on excellent terms, neither having slipped anything over on the other for several weeks. (laughs) Mr. Fishbein, moreover, possessed as well-stocked a cellar as any man in California. It would be a simple matter to go round and borrow from him all he needed. Patting Mrs. Snellenhamer's hand, and telling her that there was still bluebirds singing in the sunshine, he ran to his car and leaped into it. The residence of Isidore Fishbein was only a few hundred yards away, and Mr. Schnellenheimer was soon whizzing in through the front door. He found his friend beating his head against the wall of the sitting room and moaning to himself in a quiet undertone. (coughs) Is something the matter? he asked, surprised. There he is, said Mr. Fishbein, selecting a fresh spot on the tapestried wall and starting to beat his head against that. The police came round this afternoon and took away everything I had. Everything? Well, not Mrs. Fishbein, said the other, (laughs) with a a touch of regret. She's up in the bedroom with eight cubes of ice on her forehead in a linen bag, but they took every drop of everything else. A serpent, that's what she is. Mrs. Fishbein? Not Mrs. Fishbein, that parlor maid, that Vera Preble. Just because I stopped her when she got to Boots, 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 marching over Africa, she ups and informs the police on me. And Mrs. Fishbein, with 180 people coming tonight, including the ex-king of Ruritania. And, crossing the room, the speaker began to bang his head against the statue of genius inspiring the motion picture industry. (laughs) A good man is always appalled when he is forced to contemplate the depths to which human nature can sink. 
And Mr. Schnellenheimer's initial reaction on hearing of this fresh outrage on the part of his late parlor maid was a sort of sick horror. Then the brain, which had built up the colossal exquisite, began to work once more. Well, the only thing for us to do, he said, is to go around to Ben Zizbaum and borrow some of his stock. How do you stand with Ben? I stand fine with Ben, said Mr. Fishbein, cheering up. I heard something about him last week that you wouldn't care to have known. <laughs> Where does he live? Camden Drive. Then, tally-ho, said Mr. Schnellheimer, who had once produced a drama in eight reels of two strong men battling for a woman's love in the English hunting district. They were soon at Mr. Zisbaum's address. Entering the sitting room, they were shocked to observe a form rolling in circles around the floor with its head between its hands. It was traveling quickly, but not so quickly that they were unable to recognize it as that of the chief executive of Zisbaum Celluloid Corporation. Stopped as he was completing his 11th lap and pressed for an explanation, Mr. Zisbaum revealed that a recent parlor maid of his, Vera Preble by name, piqued at having been dismissed for deliberate and calculated reciting of the works of Mrs. Hemans, had informed the police of his stock of wines and spirits, and the latter had gone off with the whole collection not half an hour ago. And don't speak so loud, said the stricken man, or you'll wake Mrs. Zisbaum. She's in bed with ice on her head. How many cubes, asked Mr. Fishbein. Six. Mrs. Fishbaum needed eight, said the lady's husband a little proudly. <clears throat> the situation was one that might well have unmanned the stoutest motion picture executive, and there were few motion picture executives stouter than Jacob Schnellenheimer. But it was characteristic of this man that the tightest corner was always the one to bring out the full force of his intellect. He thought of Mrs. Schnellenheimer waiting for him at home, and it was as if an electric shock of high voltage had passed through him. I've got it, he said. We must go to Glutz of the Medalla Oblongata. <laughs> He's never been a real friend of mine, but if you loan him Stella Svelte and I loan him Orlando Bing and Fishbein loans him Oscar the Wonder Poodle on his own terms, I think he'll consent to give us enough to see us through tonight. I'll get him on the phone. It was some moments before Mr. Schnellenheimer returned from the telephone booth. When he did so, his associates were surprised to observe in his eyes a happy gleam. Boys, he said, Glutz is away with his family over the weekend. The butler and the rest of the help are out joyriding. There's only a parlor maid in the house. I've been talking to her, so there won't be any need for us to give him those stars after all. We'll just run across in the car with a few axes and help ourselves. It won't cost us above a hundred dollars to square this girl. She can tell him she was upstairs when the burglars broke in and didn't hear anything. And there we'll be with all the stuff we need and not a cent to pay outside the overhead connected with the maid. There was an awed silence. <laughs> Mrs. Fishbone will be pleased. Mrs. Zisbon will be pleased. And Mrs. Schnellenhaber will be pleased that the leader of the expedition, where do you keep your axes, Jens Zisbaum? In the cellar. Fetch them, said Schnellenhaber in the voice of a crusader, which he might have used in giving the signal to start against the Paynim. 
in the ornate residence of the Sigismund Glutz. Meanwhile, Vera Preble, who had entered the services <coughs> of the head of the Medulla Oblongata that morning, and was already under sentence of dismissal for having informed him with appropriate gestures that a bunch of the boys were whooping it up in the Melamut Saloon, was engaged in writing on a piece of paper a short list of names, one of which she proposed as a nom de théâtre as soon as her screen career should begin. For this girl was essentially an optimist, and not even all the rebuffs which she had suffered had been sufficient to quench the fire of ambition in her. Wiggling her tongue as she shaped the letter, she wrote, Ursuline Delmain, Theodora Trix, Uvila uh, Gladwin. None of them seemed to her quite what she wanted. She pondered, perhaps something a little more foreign and exotic. Greater Garbo. No, that had been used. <laughs> and then, suddenly inspiration descended upon her, and trembling a little with emotion, she inscribed on the paper the one name that was absolutely and indubitably right, Minna Nordstrom. The more she looked at it, the better she liked it. And she was still regarding it proudly when there came the sound of a car stopping at the door, and a few moments later in walked Mr. Schnellenheimer, Mr. Zisbaum, and Mr. Fishbein. They all wore Homburg hats and carried axes. Vera Preble drew herself up. All goods must be delivered in the rear, she began haughtily, when she recognized her former employees and paused, surprised. The recognition was mutual. Mr. Fishbein started. So did Mr. Zisbaum. Serpent, said Mr. Fishbein. Viper, said Mr. Zisbaum. Mr. Schnellenheimer was more diplomatic. <clears throat> Though as deeply moved as his colleagues by the sight of this traitorous, he realized that this was no time for invective. Well, 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 he said with a geniality, geniality which he strove to render frank and winning. I never dreamed it was you on the phone, my dear. Well, this certainly makes everything nice and smooth, us all being, you might say, old friends. <clears throat> friends, retorted Rear Pebble. Let me tell you, I know, I know, quite, quite, but listen, I've got to have some liquor tonight. What do you mean you have, said Mr. Fishbine. It's all right, all right, said Mr. Schnellenheimer soothingly. I was coming to that. I wasn't forgetting you. We're all in this together. The good old spirit of cooperation. You see, my dear, he went on, that little joke you played on us. Oh, I'm not blaming you. Nobody laughed more heartily than myself. Yes, they did, says Mr. Fishbine, alive now to the fact that this girl before him must be conciliated. I did. <clears throat> So did I, said Mr. Sisbein. <coughs> we all laughed very heartily, said Mr. Schnellenheimer. But you should have heard as a girl of spirit, we said to ourselves. Still, the little pleasantry has left us in something of a difficulty. And it will be worth a hundred dollars to you, my dear, to go upstairs and put cotton wool in your ears while we get at Mr. Glutz's cellar door with our axes. Vera Preble raised her eyebrows. What do you want to break down the cellar door for? I know the combination of the lock. <laughs> you do? <laughs> said Mr. Schnellenheimer joyfully. I withdraw that expression, serpent, said Mr. Fishbein. <laughs> when I used the term viper, said Mr. Zisbon, I was speaking thoughtlessly. <laughs> and I will tell it to you, said Vera Preble, at a price. 
She drew back her head and extended an arm, twiddling her fingers at the end of it. She was plainly registering something, but they could not discern what it was. There is only one condition on which I will tell you the combination of Mr. Glutz's cellar, and that is this. One of you has got to give me a starring contract for five years. The magnate stared. Listen, said Mr. Sisbon, you don't want a star. You wouldn't like it, said Mr. Fishbone. Of course you wouldn't, said Mr. Schnellheimer. You would look silly starring an inexperienced girl like you. No, if you had said a nice small part, star. Or featured, star. <laughs> the three men drew back a pace or two and put their heads together. She means it, said Mr. Fishbone. Her eyes, said Mr. Zisbaum, like stones. A dozen times I could have dropped something heavy on that girl's head from an upper landing, and I didn't do it, said Mr. Schnellenheimer remorsefully. Mr. Fishbein threw up his hands. It's no use. I keep seeing that vision of Mrs. Fishbein floating before me with eight cubes of ice on her head. I'm going to star this girl. You are, said Mr. Fishbein. Get the stuff and leave me to go home and tell Mrs. Zisbaum there won't... Be anything to drink at her party tonight for 111 guests, including the vice president of Switzerland? No, sir, I'm going to star her. I'll outbid you. They won't outbid me, not till they bring me that word that Mrs. Zisbaum has lost the use of her vocal cords. <laughs> Listen, said the other tensely, when it comes to using vocal cords, Mrs. Fishbein begins where Mrs. Zisbaum leaves off. <laughs> Mr. Schnellenheimer, that cool head, saw the peril that loomed. Boys, he said, boys, if we won't start bidding against one another, there'll be no limit. There's only one thing to be done. We must merge. His powerful personality carried the day. It was the president of the newly formed Perfecto Zisbaum Corporation who a few moments later stepped forward and approached the girl. We agree. And as he spoke, there came the sound of some heavy vehicle stopping in the road outside. Vera Preble uttered a stricken exclamation. Well, of all the silly girls, she cried distractedly, I've just remembered that an hour before I telephoned the police, informing them of Mr. Glutz's cellar, and here they are. <laughs> Mr. Fishbein uttered a cry and began to look around for something to bang his head against. Mr. Zisbaum gave a short, sharp moan and started to lower himself to the floor. But Mr. Schnellenheimer was made of sterner stuff. Pull yourselves together, boys, he begged them. Leave all this to me. Everything's going to be all right. Things have come to a pretty pass, he said, with a dignity as impressive as it was simple. If a free-born American citizen cannot bribe the police of his <laughs> native country... <laughs> <clears throat> True, said Mr. Fishbein, arresting his head within an inch and a quarter of a handsome oriental vase. True, true, said Mr. Sisbaum, getting up and dusting his knees. Just let me handle the whole affair. Ah, oh, boys, he went on genially. Three policemen had entered the room, a sergeant, a patrolman, and another patrolman. Their faces wore a wooden, hard-boiled look. Mr. Glutz, said the sergeant. Mr. Schnellenheimer corrected the great man, but Jacob to you, old friend. The sergeant seemed in no wise mollified by this amiability. Preble, Vera, he asked, addressing the girl. 
Nordstrom, Minna, she replied. Ah, got the name wrong then. Anyway, it was you who phoned us that there was alcoholic liquor on the premises? Mr. Schnellenheimer laughed amusedly. Oh, you mustn't believe everything that girl tells you, Sergeant. She's a great kid, or always was. If she said that, it was just one of her little jokes. I know, Glotz, I know his views. And many is the time I've heard him say that the laws of this country are good enough for him and that he would scorn not to obey them. You will find nothing here, Sergeant. Well, we'll try, said the other. Show us the way to the cellar, he added, turning to Vera Preble. Mr. Schnellenheimer smiled a winning smile. Now, listen, I've just remembered I'm wrong. Silly mistake to have made. But I don't know how I make it, but there is a certain amount of the stuff in the house, but I'm sure you dear chaps won't want to cause any unpleasantness. You're broad-minded. Listen, your name's Murphy, isn't it? Donahue. I thought so. Well, you'll laugh at this. Only this morning I was saying to Mrs. Schnellenheimer that I really must slip down to headquarters and give my old friend Donahue the ten dollars I owed him. What ten dollars? I didn't say ten. I said a hundred. One hundred dollars, Donny, old man. And I'm not saying there mightn't be a little over for these two gentlemen here. How about it? The sergeant drew himself up. There was no sign of softening his glance. Jacob Schnellenheimer, he said coldly, you can't square me. When I tried for a job at the Colossal Exquisite last spring, I was turned down on account of you said I had no sex appeal. The first patrolman who had hitherto taken no part in the conversation started. Is that so, chief? Yes, sir, no sex appeal. Well, can you tie that, said the first patrolman. When I tried to crash the colossal exquisite that said my voice wasn't right. Me, said the second policeman, eyeing Schnellenheimer sourly. They had the nerve to beef at my left profile. Look at boys, he said, turning. Can you see anything wrong with that profile? <laughs> his companions studied him closely. The sergeant raised a hand and peered between his fingers, with his head tilted back and his eyes half-closed. Not a thing, he said. Why, Basil, that's a lovely profile, said the first patrolman. Well, that's how it goes, said the second patrolman moodily. The sergeant had returned to his own grievance. No sex appeal, he said with a rasping laugh. And me that had specially taken sex appeal in the College of Eastern Iowa course on motion picture acting. Who says my voice ain't right, demanded the first patrolman. Listen, me, 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 me. <coughs> Swell, said the sergeant. Like a nightingale or something, said the second patrolman. <laughs> the sergeant flexed his muscles. Ready, boy? K.O., chief. Wait, cried Mr. Schnellenheimer. Wait, give me one last chance. I'm sure I can find parts for you all. The sergeant shook his head. Nope, it's too late. You've got us mad now. You don't appreciate the sensitiveness of the artist, does he, boys? <laughs> You're darn right, he doesn't, said the first patrolman. I wouldn't work for the colossal exquisite now, said the second patrolman with a petulant twitch of his shoulder. Not if they wanted me to play Romeo opposite Gene Harlow. <laughs> then let's go, said the sergeant. Come along, lady, you show us where the cellar is. For some moments after the offices of the law, preceded by Vera Pebble, had left, nothing was to be heard in the silent sitting-room but the rhythmic beating of Mr. Fishbein's head against the wall and the rustling sound of Mr. Zisbaum 
rolling around the floor. <laughs> Mr. Schnellenheimer sat brooding with his chin on his hands, merely moving his legs slightly each time Mr. Zisbaum came round. The failure of his diplomatic efforts had stunned him. A vision rose before his eyes of Mrs. Snellenheimer waiting in their sunlit patio for his return. As clearly as if he had been there now, he could see her swooning, slipping into the goldfish pond and blowing bubbles with her head beneath the surface. <clears throat> and he was asking himself whether in such an event it would be better to raise her gently or just leave nature to take its course. <laughs> She would, he knew, be extremely full of that stormy emotion of which she had once been queen. It was as he still debated this difficult point that a light step caught his ear. Vera Preble was standing in the doorway. Mr. Schnellenheimer? The magnate waved a weary hand. Leave me, he said. I am thinking. I thought you would like to know, said Vera Preble, that I've just locked those cops in the coal cellar. As in the final reel of a super, super film, eyes brighten and faces lighten up at the entry of the United States Marines. So, at these words of Mr. Schnellenheimer, Mr. Fishbone and Mr. Zisbaum perk up as if after a draft of some magic elixir. In the cold cellar, gasped Mr. Schnellenheimer. In the cold cellar. Then if we work quick, Vera Preble coughed. One moment, she said. Just one moment. Before you go, I have drawn up a little letter covering our recent agreement. Perhaps you will all three just sign it. Mr. Schnellenhammer clicked his tongue impatiently. No time for that now. Come to my office tomorrow. Where are you going, he asked, as the girl started to withdraw. Just to the coal cellar, said Vera Preble. I think those fellows may wish to come out. <laughs> Mr. Schnellenhammer sighed. It had been worth trying, of course, but he had never really had much hope. Gimme, he said resignedly. The girl watched as the three men attached their signatures. She took the document and folded it carefully. Would any of you like to hear me recite the bells by Edgar Allan Poe, she asked. No, said Mr. Fishbein. No, said Mr. Zisbaum. No, said Mr. Schnellenheimer. We have no desire to hear you recite the bells, Miss Preble. The girl's eyes flashed haughtily. Miss Nordstrom, she corrected. And just for that, you'll get the charge of the light brigade and like it. <laughs> <laughs>